Turn, if you would, to the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. As we race our way through, we're only 11 lessons in. The last time I taught the book of Romans, I spent 32 lessons, and so far I'm about a lesson and a half behind where I was before. So, we finished off chapter 4 last week. If you remember, we were discussing justification by faith alone in chapter 3, and in chapter 4, we used Abraham as the example to demonstrate that Abraham had been justified by faith because he believed the promises of God, not because of anything that he had done. Now, he later was obedient to God, and as James points out, he demonstrated his faith by his works, but he did not merit his salvation by his works. He believed God, and that belief was credited to him as righteousness. So today we move into chapter 5, fabulous chapter, because what we're going to talk about today are is what does justification do for us? What does it give us? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we have been justified by faith, not because of our works, not by keeping the law, whether it is the written law, whether it is the law that is written on our hearts, or whether it's just some set of rules that we've made up, since we have not been saved by following a list of rules, but we have been justified by faith, what does it do for us? Number one, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that justification by faith alone brings to us is peace with God. Now, there's a problem with this. Most of us probably sit here and think, well, I was never really at war with him. I don't know if you ever saw the uh, Pearl Harbor movie, the, the last one, and, you know, the Japanese start attacking the, the base and there's a film guy, and he's going, I didn't even know the Japanese were sore at us. <laughs> well, that's the way a lot of us view God. I, I didn't know there was a problem. I mean, let's face it, I'm not one of those people that are out with my pitchfork yelling and screaming against God. I mean, he and I got along before, and he and, along, he and I got along after. What's the big deal? What we don't realize is Romans chapter 1, 2, and half of 3. We don't really believe that. We don't really believe that God, the creator of the universe, and us, and we, and me, and I, whatever pronoun you want to use, are at war. God has established an order to the universe we have rebelled against that order. We wanted nothing to do with it. It's like if the government told you to do something and you didn't fight against it, you just ignored it. Would you be considered a very good citizen if you were just ignoring what the government had asked you to do? Well, on the cosmic level, when God has instructed us to do things, God, as the sovereign, has instructed us to do things. If we say no, we are living in rebellion before God. We have to remember this. You know, we're, we're so wrapped up in the I'm okay, you're okay, God loves us all, we're all going to heaven. No, we are at war with God. That's why the first benefit that we receive from justification by faith alone is that we have peace with God. As we see in a moment, we will talk about reconciliation. We have our relationship restored with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Whew. Through him, who's the him? Jesus. We have 
access, we have obtained access by faith to the grace. Okay. What is grace? God's unmerited favor. We've talked about that every lesson for the last five that I know of. We have access to that grace. How do we get the grace of God? Once again, let's back it up. Is it a list of something that I've done? You know, if I'm a good, say, Catholic, I believe that God's grace is necessary for salvation. But I also believe I have to do things to get that grace. I mean, when you talk about the sacraments, and to a good Roman Catholic, there's seven of them, the sacraments are the means of grace. I do this and I receive the grace. So I've done it to get the grace. How do we get the grace? Through Jesus Christ. Through something we did? No. Through something he did, Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It is interesting because sometimes these words can have several different uh, connotations. We can talk about the glory of God, which is the glory that is inherent in God. It is his honor his glory but we also can talk about it as the glory that he bestows upon us because of the grace that we have received through jesus christ remember when we talk about salvation when we use that word salvation the scripture uses that in several different ways one is to talk about the act of justification you are saved, you are declared righteous before God. But it is also used in a broader sense from election, we'll talk about that later, through justification, through sanctification, which is us working out what God has put into our lives, and all the way to glorification, where we are in heaven, and that final remnant of sin is removed from our lives. And we are, in fact, what God, what Christ has declared us to be. We are glorified. We are made saints. That is the promise that we have. And this is all tied together because we will see later, he who began the work will complete the work through Christ Jesus. It isn't, okay, I'm going to take you the first step. And if you do real hard, you can get the next step. No, he does the first step, he does the second, the third, and he finishes off the task. He who began the work will complete the work. Not only that, maybe I should skip the next phrase. I have spent the entire week literally the entire week, wrestling with the next six words. You know, it is interesting. I, I acknowledge the fact that there are uh, passages in the Scripture that are hard to understand, okay? It doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't destroy my ego to know that there are portions of the Scripture that I wrestle with. Okay, as I mentioned earlier, when we get to Romans chapter 9 and we start talking about the doctrine of predestination, we will wrestle with it. Okay, it's hard to understand. I also acknowledge the fact that there are scriptures that are easy to understand, but real hard to do. You know, love your enemy. And the fact that I have difficulty sometimes understanding passages doesn't bother me. And it doesn't make me necessarily a hypocrite. And the fact that there are some that I acknowledge that are hard to do, well, that's just the process of sanctification. That is where we are in our lives. What does the next phrase say? Hmm. We rejoice 
in our sufferings. Now, he's going to talk about what suffering does for us. And I understand the path that he's going to go down. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And that hope will not be put to shame. I understand that. It's the word rejoice that I have trouble with. I mean, several years ago, as many of you know, I spent a wonderful week in the hospital. And I would like to think that I was a pretty good patient. You know, I was nice to all the nurses. I joked with them. I let them do whatever they wanted to. I did make some comment halfway through the week about whether there was anything done in that hospital that didn't involve poking me with a needle. I just envisioned people down the hall going, ah, it's 10 o'clock. Let's go poke Kyle for some reason. So I would like to think that I was a relatively good patient, that I handled it stoically and well, but rejoice? Woo, I'm glad I'm here. What does it mean that we rejoice in our suffering? First off, we need to talk about what the suffering is. Okay? Suffering covers a lot of different things. There are some parts of suffering that obviously are not covered by this passage. That's horrible. The scripture tells us we are to rejoice when we suffer for doing good things. If we do bad things and we suffer, there's no merit in that. Okay? If I rob a bank this afternoon, which would be a good thing to do because I have lots of kids and I could use the money. (laughs) If I robbed a bank this afternoon... And the odds are I wouldn't be very good at it, and I would probably get arrested and sent to prison. I can't sit in prison thinking, God is really blessing me by putting me here. I did something wrong, and I was caught, and I am suffering the consequences for it. Okay? That's probably not covered. The easy answer to talk about is suffering for the sake of Christ. We do things that bring the hatred of the world upon us, and we suffer. And we see this in the life of Paul repeatedly and the other apostles where he says, I rejoice that I am sharing in the sufferings of Christ. It is an indication that we are following in his path if we share in the sufferings that he had. Those are probably included, and that's understandable. That's an easy answer. We could stop there and we could go on. But somewhere between those two are the sufferings of everyday life. Not necessarily because you did something horrible, not because you're being persecuted for Christ, but just the everyday sufferings of life. I go to the hospital because I'm not feeling well, And they do x-rays, and the doctor comes and says, My, you have interesting x-rays. Bad sign. You have a child, a grandchild, who is suffering some, some ailment, and it brings suffering to them, to the parents, to you, to the family and friends. One of the biggest... Biggest, biggest debates about religion, about God, about ethics is the reality of suffering. My wife and I just finished watching War in Remembrance. I think I told you before we watched The Winds of War, which was the 1980s miniseries about the events leading up to World War II. And War in Remembrance is the sequel to it, and it's only 24 hours long. And... It is predominantly about the Jews in World War II. I mean, there's other stories running in and out of it, but it is predominantly, and it's bad. I mean, it's, it depicts the Holocaust. It is suffering. 
It is the evil of humanity being projected against a group of people because of, well, what did we talk about last week? Abraham. Because of their covenant with God. That is suffering. So the question of theology, the question of philosophy, is what is the purpose of suffering? And this is a hard, hard topic. Because every time I talk about it, somebody, what you, what you really want to know is I have had this problem Show me how this problem works in God's plan. And you want to know something? I can't do that. I can't. I cannot tell how this particular suffering brings this particular virtue. But I do know that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. And he does it through suffering therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace with God therefore since we have been justified by faith we have access to grace therefore since we have been justified by faith our suffering is used by God to accomplish some purpose. I mean, let's face it. If I am trying to be justified by my works alone, okay, I'm going to work real hard, I'm going to grip my teeth, and I am going to earn my salvation, then suffering is simply a demonstration that I've messed up that I'm not accomplishing anything, that I've failed. If I believe that this world is all that exists, the here and now is all that exists, I live, I die, and I become food for worms, and that's all it is, then pain and suffering has no purpose. Because all it does is interfere with me having a good life. But if this life is not the end, if this life is simply the training ground, the preparation for eternity, then God says suffering has a purpose. I think I told you before the illustration that is used in um, The Happiness Hypothesis is the book. I think he stole it from somewhere. Let's say that your child is born. You're a new parent. Your child is born. And you are given a book that has that child's life laid out in front of you. It says everything that's going to happen, the good and the bad. And you have an eraser. Would you, ought you, use that eraser? Oh, they're five years old and they fall and they skin their knee. I'll erase that line. Oh, they're nine years old and some friend betrays them. I'll erase that line. And you start erasing all the bad. And the question, the observation in the book is, what kind of human being do you end up with? Here's the answer. We don't know. If we, if we try to write the path, we don't know. If we have faith in God to write the path. Now, once again, I know what you're thinking. Because I think the exact same thing. Yeah, but this suffering, this particular suffering how does it relate i don't know that's why we have to have faith look at the life of abraham last week 
and the week before his lesson. He received a promise, you're going to have a kid. And year after year after year, that promise was not fulfilled. And what did it, did the chapter 4 tell us? All it did was increase his faith. But that gets us back to that word that I didn't like. We rejoice. We rejoice that God is accomplishing his purpose in our life. We rejoice in the acknowledgement that this world is not the end of the story. You're going to die. Okay? Whether you die at 95 or 85 or 75 or 65 or 5, you're going to die unless Christ returns. That does not mean you lost. It doesn't mean you failed. It doesn't mean that God is not faithful. It simply means that God has finished your training. The question is, how do you respond to that? Rejoice does not mean you're having a party, okay? We are not masochist. We don't rejoice in pain in the sense that I just love being beat on, okay? The rejoicing is acknowledging that God is working in your life. Accepting the fact that God knows what he's doing, that God is accomplishing a purpose, that your suffering has meaning. That's what we have because we are justified by faith. Does that make the suffering less suffering? No. If it wasn't real suffering, you wouldn't be suffering. It's real. It's like we talked about when we talked about the book of Joshua. You know, God tells Joshua, you're going into the land, you're going to fight some battles, and I'll be with you. They were real battles. The first one probably wasn't. You know, Jericho, march around the city, yell, the wall falls down. Okay, that one is kind of miraculous. The rest of them were real battles. People, swords, spears, arrows, good guys, bad guys, real battles. Life is full of real battles. And those battles have suffering, but... In the same way that God told Joshua, be strong and courageous because I am with you, God tells us, be strong and courageous because I am with you in the midst of your suffering. Now, I just spent 10 minutes on a topic that has spent hours, books, hundreds of years trying to wrestle with. And it's a hard problem. Because you see, when I hit the suffering, when I hit the suffering, my focus descends to the suffering. That becomes the focus of everything. And God wants us to focus on him in the midst of, in the midst of the suffering in our lives. So what is this progression that I was talking about? We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. What is endurance? Come on, this is easy. Staying power. What? Running a marathon is demonstrating endurance. What? Hanging in there. The commitment to carry on. Persevering. Okay, this is pretty simple. I want to lift a big weight. What do I do? I go over here and I start lifting smaller weights repeatedly until I'm able to lift heavier weights, until I'm able to lift heavier weights, 
until I am able to lift this weight. We all know this, right? When we suffer, we are the child and our knee gets scraped. We are in a relationship that falls apart and causes suffering. When a loved one dies and we trust in God, God, I don't know why, I don't know how, but you are working through this and I have faith and belief and confidence that you're working through this. It is the same as lifting those weights and our muscles, our perseverance, our endurance increases. This is pretty simple. You know, we looked at, two weeks ago, the book of James, talking about Abraham, and James says, Abraham exhibited his faith by the fact that he was willing to sacrifice his son because God told him to do that. That's a lot of faith. I mean, there may be days when I'm not real keen on my kids, but I'm not dragging them off to slaughter them, right? This is a big act of faith on the part of Abraham. But you have to understand, God didn't walk up to some stranger on the street and pull him off the street and said, here, demonstrate that you have this massive amount of faith. He began, and he worked, and he developed faith, and he developed faith, and he developed faith, and at the end, he did what God asked him to do. Endurance comes when we endure suffering, acknowledging that that suffering... I'm not going to say it. Acknowledging that God is working through that suffering. What I didn't say is that God caused it or allowed it. There's a huge debate about that, and I'm not going to get into it. We acknowledge that the suffering exists and that God will accomplish his purpose. And we do that with the little ones and the little ones and the bigger ones and the bigger ones, and we develop endurance. You know, you have difficulties at work. The world looks like that it's falling apart. And who steps forward? The person who has survived these kinds of things before. The person who understands. We can't just collapse. We have to do the next step. We have to endure. And this actually produced an interesting series of thoughts in my head is it possible to suffer and not produce endurance each step of this process that we're going through I believe it's possible to say no everybody is going to suffer okay I don't personally know anybody who hasn't suffered we can argue about the quantity, the quality, whatever of suffering, but I don't know of anybody who hasn't suffered. Everybody is going to suffer. Does that mean that everybody produces endurance? Not necessarily. You can just curse God and die, whether literally, figuratively, metaphorically, or in some other way. You can say, no, God, I'm not going to let you Use this to make me stronger. I'm just going to curse you and die. It was the option that Job's wife wanted Job to follow, and he wouldn't do it. Why do I say this? Because we have been justified by faith. Our suffering has meaning, which means that it's quite possible that it doesn't have meaning if we haven't been justified by faith, if we're not acknowledging what God is doing in the midst of our lives. <sighs> hmm. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. 
What is character? And don't say, well, that person over there, he's a character. (laughs) That's a different connotation. Character is doing the right thing over and over until it becomes habitual. You know, a person of strong character doesn't get into every situation and go, hmm, I wonder what I should do in this situation. Now, there are difficult times. There are things things that you have to think about for a while. But in general, a person of character has principles that they're living their lives by, and when they get into a situation, they stay by those principles that God has given them. Why don't we demonstrate character more than we sometimes do? Because we're worried about the consequences. We're worried that if I stand up for my principles, people will say bad things about me, people will harm me, people will do things to me. People will cause suffering. But if I know that God brings suffering into my life, that that's just part of who I am, that God uses that suffering to produce endurance, then my character is strengthened because I know that the fact that people will cause suffering to me, that's something that I can survive because God is using it to work something in my life. Character, character is the strengthened iron that has been strengthened by sending it through the furnace of life. Character, character is the product of endurance and endurance is the product of suffering. (laughs) Wait a minute. Can't I get character just by living a nice, peaceful life and minding my own business? Maybe. Probably not. I doubt it. How would you know? How would you know? If everything always went your way, every single day, every single minute of every single day, always went your way, how would you know if you had character? How would you develop character? Not only that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. What is the hope that comes from character, that comes from endurance, that comes from suffering. What is the hope that comes out of that process? Well, the obvious one to begin with is the acceptance of the fact that the suffering is going to end. The suffering is going to end at some point. Somewhere up here I have a verse. I always like this because I liked that first sentence. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I always like that phrase, light and momentary. What is a light and momentary suffering? A paper cut? A splinter? In light of eternity, what is light and momentary? You ready for this? Just about anything that's in this life, in light of eternity. Now, do I believe that? Well, I believe it because the Bible says it's true. When you're laying in the hospital bed, is it hard to understand? Yes. When someone you love... Brief and passing. Yeah. Light and momentary afflictions are producing in us a hope of glory. 
What is the hope that we have? The hope that God is completing in us the work that he has set for us to do. In the midst of the suffering, Paul reached the point where he got beaten, stoned, drowned, shipwrecked. There's a whole list of things that happened to him. And he got to the point where he said, you know, live, die, whatever brings glory to God, go for it. In fact, dying is probably easier, but, you know, he's got something for me to do. I'll keep doing it, and that's fine too. Why? Because he had a hope of what was before him. To me, we've talked about this when we talked about through the Gospels. You look at the apostles. Before the resurrection, after the crucifixion, but before the resurrection. They were done with it all, okay? They were. The whole thing had fallen apart. They were done. Back to the fishing boats, back to their old way of life. They were done. And then Jesus showed up. And all of those apostles were willing to die for what they believed. Why? Because they had the hope of the resurrection. They had the hope they had seen the risen Lord. That hope allowed them to see the suffering in light of eternity. One of these days, I will go to the hospital bed and not leave the hospital in my physical body. But you know what? That's just the start. It's not the end. Does that mean that it's easy and it's not suffering? How many times do I have to keep saying this? The suffering is real. Don't, don't leave here thinking that I'm putting on some whitewash over suffering and saying it doesn't matter. Suffering is real. The pain is real. The tears are real. And that's okay. That's okay. But because of our justification by faith alone, we know that our pain doesn't cause us to lose our salvation. Our pain doesn't cause us to move out of the will of God. It is simply God working in our lives to accomplish something that in light of eternity is light and momentary. It's hard. It's really hard. And hope does not put us to shame. What would be a hope that would put you to shame? You know, I'm hoping the Dallas Cowboys win the Super Bowl. Lots of shame that, on that one, okay? Why? Because it's just wishful thinking. But when your hope is based on the promises of God, you will not suffer shame because God will keep his promises. How do we know that? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit lives in us to remind us that God is still at work in our lives and that God will accomplish the purposes that he has for us. That's what gives us hope, not just wishful thinking. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Let's get the timeline of your life straight. Okay? You were without Christ. You were without Christ. You were an unbeliever. You were at war with God. And you read a book. You had a voice from God or something. And God said, work real hard. And when you've cleaned up your life, I will pay the penalty for your sin." Now, hop to it, go do the work. No. While we were still sinners, 
while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Question. This is a real hard question. Who did Christ die for? Sinners. The ungodly. He didn't die because you had perfected yourself and he was ready to let you in. He died while we were in our sin. That's when he died and paid the penalty for our sin. (coughs) For one will scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. It would be an interesting discussion, but I'm not going to have it. Who would you be willing to die for? Who would you be willing to die for? My children, okay. My wife, okay. Maybe a few other people. Maybe somebody that was nice to me who had treated me well all my life. Would I be willing to die for someone who was at war with me? Who Would I be willing to die for someone who took my instructions, my desires, my will, and subverted them every chance they got? Would I be willing? No. Let him go. That's who we are apart from Christ. That's who we were before Christ died for our sin. Very few people would die for a really good person. Nobody would die for somebody that was wretched and at war with you. You might want to just help the death along. But that's not what God did for us. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is important that we remember. We have talked about it before, and we're going to talk about it again and again and again. God is going to save us in such a way that all the glory, all the credit goes to God so that no one can boast. When you were at your worst, when you had committed sins that you didn't even know they were sins, but God did, Christ died for you. Christ didn't look down and find the best looking, the best dressed, the best people and die for them. He died for us while we were in our sin. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood. Since we have been justified by his blood. We talked about the blood aspect, the whole idea of the atonement. We go back to the sacrificial system as a picture of what Christ accomplished in our lives. To me, what's interesting is the have now been. What does that mean? It's been done. You are justified or you're not. If you have accepted Christ, if you have believed the promises, God declares you have been justified. It isn't something that's going to be done after you've gotten your act together. We have been justified because of the work of Christ. We have been now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Back to the second half of chapter 1. The wrath of God is being poured out on all of mankind because... Because the things about of God should have been clearly seen by us, but we said, no, we're going to go worship something else. And because of that, we are rightfully 
the objects of his wrath. Now, that bothers a lot of people. God is love, and we don't want to talk about wrath. Wrath is his righteous judgment poured out on those people who have rejected him. It's there. We can say it doesn't sound very nice. We can say we don't like it. It doesn't matter. The wrath of God has been poured out on all of humanity because we have rejected God. But because we have been justified by faith in the work of Jesus Christ, that wrath of God, what does it say? We have been saved from God's wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Reconciled is an interesting word. We've been talking about justification. Justification is a legal term. The court has declared you to be righteous. Why? Because the judge is looking at the finished work of Jesus Christ that has been given to you. You have been declared righteous. Well, I can declare you righteous and still want nothing to do with you. I mean, let's face it. You know, there are people who I've said, okay, I forgive you. I still think you're a wretched human being. Go away and don't come back. That may be justification, but it's not reconciliation. Reconciliation is the picture of two people becoming friends. Hmm, that's interesting. Two people having a relationship with each other. An ongoing relationship of friendship. Since we have been justified, since we have been saved from the wrath to come, since we have done this, we are reconciled with God. Remember back to the very beginning. And I use this illustration because it's going to be the next lesson, two weeks when we come back. Adam and Eve, we're told that they walked in the garden with God and talked with him. They had an intimate relationship of friendship. And sin broke that apart. We have been reconciled and that friendship has been restored. That's pretty amazing. It isn't an angry judge who has reluctantly decided to pronounce us well, not guilty, but you're still a scumbag. It is a loving God who has justified us, declared us righteous, has saved us from the wrath of God, has restored peace in our relationship, has given us access to his grace, and he has reconciled our relationship. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We've received it. It is the gift that has been given to us. Back to the start of the chapter. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what do we have? We have peace with God. We have the war that we started when we rebelled. That war has ended. We have peace with God. It's not just a ceasefire. It's peace. We were discussing this week, you know, technically we're still at war with North Korea. Did you all know that? We have a ceasefire, but we never signed a peace treaty. That's not what this is. We have peace with God. We have access to his grace through Jesus Christ. It's interesting. You have all these 
pictures that you see here and in the book of Hebrews where Christ is the high priest that gives us access to the Holy of Holies, to the presence of God who is interceding before the Father on our behalf. We have access to the grace. We have meaning in the midst of our suffering. And as I said, that's hard. It's hard for me to understand. Why? Because we don't like suffering. And what's hard is the rejoicing part. Not, woohoo, we're having a party because I'm suffering. It's the acknowledgement that a loving God is accomplishing something in our life and that something is something of value because we have been justified by faith. We have hope and that hope will be fulfilled. We have the Holy Spirit. We have been saved from the wrath of God. And more than all of that, we have been reconciled to God. Not only, not only, are we just, okay, you're off the hook, go sit in the corner. We are off the hook, and God wants a relationship with us. And he does that by giving us the Holy Spirit. You do know, right, that the Holy Spirit is God? Okay, we've got that piece down? We have God and us walking in the garden in the cool of the evening, just like Adam. But there was a problem with Adam and Eve, and that is next week's, or two weeks from now's lesson. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for what you have provided to us because of justification. I pray, Lord, that we would, in fact, rejoice, develop endurance, character, and hope because we know that you will keep your promise. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.